Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. This is the Ubuntu Podcast. And welcome to this episode of the Ubuntu Podcast. This is Hano Kilma, and I'm joined here with... This is David, y'all. What's good? What's good, DC? <laughs> awesome. Thanks, David. Now, here at the Ubuntu Podcast, we want to reiterate our mission uh, to create a radically thoughtful space for the African diaspora to deeply explore how we can create, sustain, and struggle to achieve genuine community and solidarity across the world. Now... This is gonna be Amen. yeah. Now this is gonna be the <laughs> now this will be the first of a two-part uh, episode series that we're gonna start on migration. So we'll focus on migration uh, among the Black and African diaspora to America, and then we'll also have a second part that discusses uh, migration globally. I do want to acknowledge that we are a two out of three man show for this episode. Our beloved third co-host Natty. Um, We'll be taking a little break for this episode, but don't worry for all you you natty stands. <laughs> He'll be back very soon. He will be back. Um, he's just doing grown big boy stuff. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I'm excited about this conversation. Um, Hanok, I know we've talked about this one for a bit. Um, and like you said, it's gonna be two parts two-part conversation that's all about migration it's all about what it means for black people to travel across borders um and i think this first episode we're gonna take a we're gonna (laughs) take a (laughs) so this first episode we're gonna (laughs) god ugh So this first episode, we're going to definitely take a domestic focus. By domestic, we mean the U.S., where we're located, and talk about the story of Black immigrants and the story of Black migration. And obviously, there's not a single story. It's not a monolithic story, but it's trying to, I would call it, um, like, take the covers back a bit and talk about what so many people often forget in the in the narrative around immigration. So I'm going to just get right into it. Are we ready, Hinnock, to kind of just explore? Yeah, I'm excited, man. She got When we think about U.S. immigration, what does our visual imagination conjure up? One of Trump's enduring presidential legacies will be policy surrounding immigration and how his administration came to truly define more than recent presidencies before how this country conceives of ideas of foreign versus domestic and the often moving spaces immigrants play between what is often a polarizing dichotomy. This country referred to as a nation of immigrants The American melting pot, you know, textbooks adorned with photos of Ellis Island and Lady Liberty still suffers largely from its imperialist origins and is unable to properly situate those from other lands and borders. I put that in quotes because let's be real, settler colonialism (laughs) as authentically and like uniquely American. And if you're unsure what I'm referring to, let's just think about a few things that we've seen in the most recent years as it relates to immigration. We've had illegal ICE raids that were 
exposed nationally, publicly, you know, folks who are disguised in plain clothing, ripping people away from their homes, from their jobs, from their lives. You had kids in cages who have been starved, sexually abused, separated from their families and suffering life altering consequences. Thousands upon thousands of them. Like, for example, in 2018, when it was reported that nearly 3000, um, nearly 3000 youth were lost, <laughs> you know, by the U.S. government. Unsure as well. Militarized Border Patrol. You know, we see the images of the the, the, the the border patrol agents with with machine level guns and barbed wire tanks and all of the thousands of people who die trying to make it across the U.S. Mexican border every year. And even most recently, the forced sterilization of women and ICE detention centers in Georgia, which drew a lot of parallels to the 20th century eugenic movement um, that took place in the United States. So again, thinking about all of those horrifying travesties that happened, I want you to think about again, when, when those things come to mind, what pictures are you seeing? Who are the people that are implicated within that and within our collective USA immigration narrative? I think for me, the longest time the folks involved in this were brown. And they are from countries like El Salvador, Mexico or Venezuela. And though that is, you know, true, we often erase the black immigrants who travel from places like Haiti and Cuba and all around the Americas the West Indies, and throughout the continent of Africa, who also have difficult relationships with the legal, moral, and sociological constructions of American citizenship. Many of these folks are also undocumented, harassed, detained, and profiled, and who also deal with the dueling reality of anti-Black oppression, making them a unique target for a variety of system failures in this country. But before we move any further in this conversation, Hanak, I want to talk to you. Help help ground me in this conversation. You know, I'm technically a black immigrant as well, but I'm XX generation American, you know, <laughs> but you're a first generation black American. And um, I know a lot about, you know, your story. And I know that it dovetails with some of these things that other black migrants go through. Um, and which makes it, I imagine, pretty personal for you. So I want to ask, like, what are things that you think people often fail to consider about the experience of black immigrants in contrast to like the larger immigrant discourse? Uh, That's a really good question, David. And I think something that I've become more aware of, uh, especially recently with like the climate that we're in now politically as it relates to race. um, And you mentioned it uh, just a minute ago when it comes to the the, the double whammy that black immigrants face. And we've touched upon it in previous episodes and in some of the Africa, the news segments as well. And I think it's like one of the biggest things that I think people don't immediately recognize. Um, and I think just like you had mentioned, the differences from a sociological standpoint and the experiences that uh, a black migrant will have um, is unique hmm. to them specifically. If you look at, uh, I remember, I think it was, you know, in this election, if you look at 
the demographics of who voted for Trump, especially among immigrants. Uh, something that was interesting that we saw was, I believe it was in Miami, right, where you saw that <laughs> notable, like a, a pretty large amount of people from like the Latins community who voted for Trump. And then you could see in right. like the demographic breakdown of it, it was among those who were white, so white Latinx uh, individuals who predominantly supported Trump or voted for him. And then it, it raised a really important conversation that I saw across social media from people who were discussing how, you know, even in like America, the you know, the term like being Lat- Latinx and, you know, previously, you know, terms like Hispanic and Latino were mm-hmm. used to pretty much integrate groups of people from a lot of countries in Central America uh, and South America. Yeah. And you can see how it didn't necessarily... Um, distinguish you know the racial differences as well and how that right. how that plays out um in terms of their views on politics in particular in their view of you know what who will support them as it relates to their own their own livelihoods so where as a black latinx person might not vote for trump someone who is maybe from the same country Right, and be someone from Cuba who is white might vote for Trump, and someone else who is a black migrant might vote for in the opposite direction. So that just gives you like a sense of the differences there between black immigrants compared to those um, more non-black immigrants. And I think that's what I've seen in my context as well, where even growing up, if I didn't realize it off the bat, now I'm seeing how yeah. my life experiences, my ability to integrate. Even though I was born here, I could see the differences in terms of the reception, in terms of the stereotypes that I faced versus other immigrants who were non-black um, and how mm. while they faced hurdles, they were, you know, different hurdles. They did not experience the same kinds of racism that I did. Right. Because like you like you mentioned, like the sociological constructions are there of being a black person in this country, being a black person, you know, on the, in the world. Um we are viewed differently and then we're a part of a system that treats us and oppresses us as well. So that's, I think, the one of the biggest things that people fail to consider is the the racism that Black immigrants experience in addition to the hurdles of just integrating into a new society. That's a good point, Hinnock, Um because, yeah, some folks definitely voted for Trump and some folks didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Some folks did yep. not in that whole conversation around. And I just remember seeing so many headlines and think pieces. Oh, my God. If I have to read one more think piece uh, being like, you know, why Latino voters are voting, you know, for Trump and stuff. And yeah. it's just like this is not even emblematic of what it means to be Latino or Latinx or all the folks who don't fit into that narrative around who voted for who. And you're right. When we talk about when we talk about Latinx racial politics, it's often devoid of race. So I appreciate you bringing that up. I appreciate you bringing that up. That was that was a good point. Hey, was that saying it wrong the whole time? Anyone knows Latinx? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, you're you're calling it. What were you calling it? Latinx? Latinx? Yeah. <laughs> I've never said. <laughs> I've never said it like out loud before. So really? So I think, <laughs> and Hanak, another thing that I think is really important, um, speaking about Trump, speaking about black immigrants, what people don't know, and we'll talk about this a bit later, but all the way up until the end of Trump's presidency, he was deporting black folks in ICE like crazy. 
You know, I mean, I was reading somewhere that there was multiple flights from states like Louisiana flying to Nairobi to deport in like very like last minute fashion. Folks from Somalia, folks from Kenya, Ethiopians, um, and to try to transport them Mm -hmm. to Nairobi. And then from there, they'll take commercial flights back to Nairobi. Um, But well, not back to excuse me, from Nairobi to their countries of origin. (laughs) But it was said that over 50 like Somali people who have been who have been deported, um, like have not been like their whereabouts have not been disclosed, you know, just a lot of very concerning things. And then you already talk about mm. the issues. Wow. And we'll, again, we'll go into yeah. this later with ICE around how they were disproportionately harassing, detaining, using harm and use of force on black detainees, how their sentences were longer, you know, how they were more likely to be exposed and to be um, to receive COVID than other detainees. Um, all kinds of stories and accounts of sexual and physical abuse being forced to sign documents to legalize and codify certain unfair and cruel um, de- deportations. Like this is particularly with black migrants and we don't talk about those things. And so just when you brought up Trump, I was like, that's such an, I was like, I got to lift this because even unto this man's last day, you know, everyone's talking about the all the commutations and all the people he pardoned, you know, his last night in office, he was also sending black people on planes back to countries where there's violence and political um, political upheaval in a way that's just very, very disturbing. Yeah, that's that's really I mean, that's really shocking. I mean, I was aware of, you know, the fact that black immigrants were being deported, but I think to the extent Right. You know, it's often not fully covered. Right. So. right. Another really important point I'd love for you to talk about comes from the fact that and you, we, like you said, we've talked about this in other episodes, but historically there's been a lot of tension and I think much of it has been engineered between black, I put in quotes, and immigrant, I put in quotes, communities. I think nationally, it's often this black versus brown false hierarchy in comparison um, that comes from decades of community mm-hmm. disinvestment between black and brown communities and white supremacy that created those things. But also amongst, you know, African descendant of slave mm-hmm. black and black immigrant communities, there's also that tension, that divide, that schism. Mm-hmm. I even remember for myself, like mm-hmm. growing up, some of the narratives, there were definitely narratives around Central American, Latinx, for lack of a better word, brown folks. You know, though there were narratives certainly around those individuals and those communities and what their presence in the United States meant that were not positive and that were deeply rooted in xenophobia and white supremacy. But there's also, I remember narratives growing up that circled around black immigrant communities that also were xenophobic, but also perpetuated a lot of anti-blackness from black people. (laughs) You know, like, it's just like, you know, I'm just like, (laughs) we're black. Like, they're the same color. Like, I'm like, I don't get it. We have the same features. Like, what's happening? 
Um, And I was often told, you know, by certain people that black immigrants look down upon Americans, black Americans specifically. You know, they wanted to be separatists. They weren't interested in being a part of the black American story or experience and that they somehow even like led to our communities, black descendant of slaves being economically deprived, you know, by taking resources meant for us and opportunities to open businesses and like being dominating, like being monopolizing in that way and just all kind of stuff about them not contributing in the same way that we do and vice versa, hearing that that's what they think about us. Like there, but I knew growing up that there always seemed to be pieces like these were just kind of pieces of a larger story that we were kind of getting wrong. You know what I mean? Do you think like these outdated narratives are dying, you know, between black immigrant communities and black descendant of slave communities? Like, do you feel like as a black group, a politic, whatever you want to call it, You think we've like graduated in our views of what it means to be black in America beyond the simple connection to chattel slavery? Excuse me, I don't want to call it simple, but more like essential. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, definitely not simple. Um, Like, what do you think? Do you feel like we're past it or do you feel like there's still like work to be done in terms of the visibility and the acceptance of black immigrants in the black community? That's that's another really good question, and we we talked about this in our United We Stand, Divided We Fall season one. Yes, episode. Yes. Uh, so yeah, for our viewers, if you want to take a listen to that, uh, feel free to go back. Not to, if, but when. When you t- exactly. <laughs> I'm just when, kidding. I'm just when kidding. when you take a listen, <laughs> go ahead and listen to that episode. But that is a very good question, and I think we are. I think we've made steps. And I've seen it just over the course of my life, my my 24-year life. I've seen it uh, (laughs) so far. I've definitely seen progress. And I think there's been a lot of maturity in how we've related to each other. And I think that with, you know, the recent things taking place, you know, I think with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, you've seen, again, you've seen how a lot of the world, Black people around the world have unified to that extent in sharing, you know, the commonality of what they experience and they're able to relate people from around the world. I mean, we've heard, uh, we heard uh, Tembo talk about it in episode five about how he, you know, was emotional when he saw George Floyd um, go through that. And so I think the narrative is is definitely changing. There's there's always room for growth in it, Um, but I see progress. And I think a lot of the the notions that we had growing up, of each other as communities, I've seen that change at least within my community and with the peers that I have. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen it like progress over time. Um, that being said, I, I think there there is definitely still room to grow. And I think I've always been very interested to to just like go back and then see how other like younger kids are are like engaging with each other. Folks from our communities, you know, are they yeah. are things better are they worse um i feel like they progressed compared to when we were younger um but i definitely like want to go back and also just like see how things are yeah if that makes sense i do I, I that i mean 
I do. I don't know why I said I do. Yes, that does. <laughs> I do understand you. That's what I meant. So let me ask you this. So you're Ethiopian American for those who may be listening that don't know. And I'm imagining when you're talking about your communities and their relationship to other black people, it's like the Habesha community, maybe folks from East Africa, just in general. <laughs> do you find peace with claiming black identity for yourself personally? Or do you feel like in if you claimed black identity, there's something like maybe missing from your from how you would choose to define yourself. Yeah, I'd say that I find peace in it. I think that you can be black and you know Ethiopian at the same time. I think there there are interchangeable identities. There isn't. I don't. I don't see that there's a a thing as being blacker than you are Ethiopian or being more Ethiopian than you are black. I think the identities are intertwined. Um, yeah. I think there could be a larger conversation regarding uh, the, the I guess, ethnic, I guess, history and background and genealogy of, of people on the continent. And that that's another story. Um, yeah. And so, but personally, I, I, I consider myself as a black person and I, I don't I don't see myself outside of that identity um, when it comes to how I identify myself I think both are interchangeable and I think a lot of uh, at least in the Ethiopian community I think that has become the growing consensus um, over time I think a lot of folks especially and I think especially when you are in America um, outside of like our physical features and characteristics we mm-hmm. very much relate to um sociological you know uh the economic and just the cultural kind of background that other black people in this country face um the other black people in this country um are a part of whether it be african-americans uh or other african communities i think we, we we more closely relate to them um than we do with any other group and i think that's that's what makes the most sense. I think that's what um, would make the most sense. I think even growing up, um, I think the folks that I've been able to relate to from a cultural kind of like from a cultural level have definitely been black people, uh, people from the, the, the diaspora, be it African-Americans, uh, first generation Africans. Um, I think there's a commonality that, that will always be there. In addition to the fact that we're not a monolith, um, I think we do share that commonality that will always remain. Hannah, can you even just share a little bit about your family's, like, U.S. migration, immigration story, to whatever extent you know you want to? Yeah, what happened? Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Four score and seven. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll start. Uh, yeah, so essentially with our story... The, the way that we got here uh, was sort of random, actually. Uh, if those of you, uh, if our viewers are aware of the, the DV lottery, it's the diversity visa lottery. So it was, from my understanding, a very random, just random selection of people um, that are chosen to to get a visa to, to settle in the United States. And the story from the way my parents uh, have shared it with me is that uh, one day my dad just went to the store um, in Ethiopia, just in the capital, in Addis Ababa, and he just filled out an application to get uh, the DV uh, visa. Um, and that was, I think, at the very beginning of the program. So back in 1995, when it just first just started. Um, and then they got it. They were selected out of a lottery, random lottery. And then, uh, yeah, 1995, 
1995, they immigrated to this country, um, settled in Washington, D.C. Uh, my aunt was here, so they lived with, with her for a little bit. Um, and then I believe with another relative as well. And then they, then I was born and we lived in D.C. for uh, a few years, relocated down the street to Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, right <laughs> around the border. So our story in terms of how we got here was, yeah, a bit of very random kind of story. Um, but after that, from my understanding, the program expanded. And it, I think it was the late 90s when immigration, Ethiopian immigration to the U.S. really expanded um, hmm. And the community in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area started to grow. Um, and now the diaspora here is the largest um, largest Ethiopian diaspora community out of any other community in the world. Uh, so it just wow. goes to show. Yeah. And I think even just like one thing that I want to do is I learn a bit more about like that program, actually. Now that I think of it, the diversity visa lottery program and kind of learn more about the role that it played in expanding uh, immigration from four African communities as well. Man, that's really great. There's multiple things I was going to say. Yeah. And yes, and speaking of those programs, very excited to see, you know, what's possible, you know, the possible future of immigration policy, which has been a very, to be quite honest, like dismal area of policy federally for the last like five presidents and yes that includes Obama I'm so sorry (laughs) to break it to you all notoriously Um, and we'll see with the reinstatement of certain visas like diversity visas you know what becomes of the certain trends in immigration for black people around the world and how they make their way to the U.S. And if those kind of hopes are restored. So thinking about hopes restored, I also want to ask you, so it seems like your parents didn't, like, did they ever have deep aspirations growing up? Like, I'm going to be in the U.S. Like, I want to get to the U.S. Because it sounds like this visa lottery was more of like on a whim. Mm-hmm. Did was. they ever, did they ever want to be in the, I mean, I guess to apply at some point they wanted to go, but yeah. was it like, we're going to find a way to get to the U S uh, you see like the, uh, I might not be the best person to, <laughs> to share that. I'll take that part out. Um, you know, from, from, from like my conversations with my parents, I don't really feel like there was a strong sense of urgency to come here. Um, and I honestly, I think was on a whim I think even back then, like in the early 90s, it was like the common sort of desire to like, hey, let me try to get to America. Um, And so my dad just, yeah, filled it out randomly and then kind of put his hopes up. But uh, that being said, definitely aware of a lot of people who, you know, that was their end goal. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting, this is maybe a bit off topic, but... Um, even in like in in the media, like in Ethiopian media, and I think other African media as well, like they touch on that. They touch on this sort of like desperation that people have to to leave the country, to go to America, to to go abroad, and um, you see it in the media, and you see how they portray uh, people. Um, and it's almost lately, it's almost as as if it's been um, there's been like a very intentional effort to encourage people to to believe that they can build themselves up um, in their home country um, 
because people are very well aware of it. They're very well aware of the fact that a lot of people just want to leave. Um, they feel like the only way they can get a better life is if they go to like America. Um, and yeah. the perception uh, from from people, from friends that that came here when they were younger or that came here uh, yeah, after growing up in Ethiopia, a lot of what I've heard is they they were basically you know led to believe that america was like heaven that it was um mm-hmm. like a safe haven and the portrayal of it in um in their own lives was very much like america is the place to be like your life will like be perfect once you get here the american dream right um yeah. very common thing that we hear it's a powerful myth yeah and so like oftentimes people come here and you know the the realities are different people have different experiences and they come with different expectations, but I've very often um, seen or I've heard friends kind of share about how it wasn't what they expected. Um, didn't meet their very, I think, unrealistic expectations that were not, it wasn't their fault for believing it. It was, you know, what people were led to believe. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of desperation, I think, for folks who believe like this is their best option. This is their only resort. Um and I know it's something that we'll touch on in part two. There are many reasons for that. Um, some people, you know, some people are economic migrants in search of like a better life, better, better, um, you know, being able to just make it uh, to, to thrive economically and for their families. Mm-hmm. And then other folks that don't have much of an option where they're forced to flee their country of origin. But that's something that I know we'll go into a little bit later on. So that's that's what I've seen um, on my end, at least. Yeah. And what you said was so important about it's not people's fault that they believe these things because it is an export from the U.S. Yeah. to the rest of the world. I think that's why when we talk about imperialism and people are like, oh, my God, you guys are always saying these words. But that's exactly what imperialism is. Like it's it's the soft power in a lot of ways of like how can we influence and and pretty much disseminate our culture as the most desirable everywhere in the world. Exactly. In terms, you know, and and like that's exactly what it is. Like that's an engineer exactly. fantasy. You said it perfect. You said it perfectly. Yeah, that's a perfect way to wrap that all up. Definitely. Because my experience, even just, and obviously, I'm born and raised in America. My family for however long as well, and when I've traveled to the continent or when I have been across you know just come across just various different folks from Africa or families from Africa directly and their understanding of me as a black American or their assumptions it's just around like oh my goodness it must be so great and this and I'm like it's it's okay (laughs) you know I'm like it's a lot it's It's a lot it's a lot different than what I think people really think um, and even I have found that there's been a lot of conflict as well around I'm, me trying to mm-hmm. properly explain to people yeah. like w- my, why this experience is not like the way people think and then pushback as far as like, yeah. well, you're in this country and you have these resources and you have these means and look at where your life is. Look at the fact that look at what you make, look at the kind of places you work, the kind of school you went to. And then relative to that, my experience inward in the U.S. and seeing all this economic inequity and you know all these like disparities it's just really hard to reconcile and like migration is kind of like that bridge where all those things kind of start to get really wonky and mm-hmm. kind of weird and so I think that's why this conversation is important I also want to ask you 
connected to that, I know this hasn't been your experience. Well, I think it hasn't. But what I know, what I've heard from a lot of other migrants who come from Africa and countries where being black is just a matter of fact, it's like a Mm non-factor. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like, did your parents or other people you know, do they ever talk about what it was like to be made or to be racialized, Mm -hmm. I guess, for the first time to be a minority? And because I've heard from people that can be quite difficult to wrap their head around, like the the lunacy of race. Mm -hmm. Like, did your parents or people, you know, have an experience of like, whoa, what what's happening? Why are people treating me like this? That's so good. And I think uh, that connects well with what you were saying about how it's hard for people to to, to understand, not understand, but I think people are kind of taken aback when you talk about inequality in the U.S. or you talk about racism in the U.S. having a substantial impact on your well-being or your ability to mm-hmm. thrive. Uh, and so that connects with the ability for people to understand that um, from from a immigrant perspective as well and i think i i think this is another this is a a, definitely a larger conversation on race ethnicity and perceptions among the diaspora in particular um but i'd say there have been plenty of instances really where my parents have experienced uh racism or they've experienced instances where they have you know seen prejudice against them and they've seen discrimination take place uh comments you know made towards them you know comments like go back to your country go back to africa um when mm-hmm. someone when someone gets upset right or uh i think even then i i think there's still there's this level of there's a desire to be resilient in in all of our communities right not just african immigrant communities african-americans as well there's there has been a resilience i mean it's sort of hasn't been much of a choice right. right but that desire to to be resilient means that oftentimes when we're wronged we we let it go um but we also don't acknowledge it as well at times too um and i've seen that happen as well where where people have been mistreated but because of their because of their situation right they're to an extent things are different based on the person and their circumstance, but their vulnerabilities at play. So if uh, you're vulnerable or if you're in a position where you need to, you need to work, you need to keep your job for your family or you need to keep working. Yeah. If it's a part of your integration process and like your ability to stay and to remain in this country is dependent on that. Um, There's, there've been overt, you know, instances of racism where they picked up on it. And I think people are aware of the fact that, they are considered as outsiders, and for that reason, right. their experiences are different. So people are well well aware of it, um, and they see that play out. And I think there was, I think the awareness of of you know racism and, and discrimination and challenges has has risen um, as the diaspora population has increased because more people are aware of what's going on. So they're so people that are you know new newly arrived immigrants are. They're aware of what's going on. They're they're being informed. Yeah. So, and people even in their home countries are also being aware of it. And to an extent, you could argue that it's having an effect on their desire or choice to to immigrate here. 
That reminds, yeah, that, that's real. It reminds me of, I don't know when it happened, but I feel like, was it Jamaica? And we'll fact check this and put it, the link in the story description. But I feel like Jamaica put, um, like, traveling to the United States as, like, an advisor on the United States for travel for black men because they're like, it's dangerous. Like, I know, I've, I know, yeah. Wasn't it Jamaica? I don't know if it was, it might have been. I know, I know a country did do that. That's been done. Yeah. Like, it's very much very publicized. Like you're saying, there's a risk. Black people's lives are at yeah. risk in America. So, like, be careful. Yeah. That's a big statement to say from these countries that have historically felt like you said America was the only option to then saying, yo, maybe let's chill on this American dream for a bit because yeah. they're getting killed. Yeah. That's, yeah, you're right. It's a big, you know, there's there's a, there's a shift in people's perception of uh, of this country um yeah it's been there especially the last few years um there's been a big and you know big what's shift. also really interesting so to prep for this episode Hannah, i was just doing some general research some of these things i had kind of known but i got some really incredible statistics and i'm gonna we can we'll definitely you know link the the, the um the sources in our story description so if you want to learn more check that out but I, I just want to read these out loud because when you talked about how we're evolving you know maybe the black community's evolution and understanding the important contribution and way that black immigrants really tell the story of our country but also our what it means to be black and what it means to endure anti-blackness Black immigrants are such a valuable part of our community nationally um, and what they contribute to what we call the America or the American dream. Mm. Um, something, one thing that I heard that was incredible was that. So in 1970, one in 100 black Americans was an immigrant. Mm. But today, that's one in 10. Wow. Isn't that, that's, that's a huge leap, right? Yeah, it's a huge one. Definitely. So, like, Black Americans have grown by like tenfold, mm-hmm. you know, in the last in the last four decades, mm-hmm. really five decades. Wow, we're in 2020, Um And particularly between 2010 and 2018, the percentage of Black Americans grew 30 percent in the U.S. Isn't that like that's a big number? It's and really I feel like, like that speaks to the fact that I. We, we have to be united. There's just too much at stake to not be. And for black Americans or for folks who want to engage with black folks to not engage black immigrants as meaningful solidarity building partners as you know, within our constituency. And these are other incredible things that I've found out. There are 2.3 million eligible black immigrant voters nationwide. And in 2018, black immigrants had a spending power of nearly $100 billion. Not only that. Wow. Let's take, let's take, since let's, let's just go down a row. Let's talk about case scenarios (laughs) to help, you know, really solidify the important significance of really engrafting the black immigrant story into the black American story. What's an issue that is very um, plagued with really stark, dangerous uh, disparities? Let's say healthcare, for example. 
We can't reform the healthcare system for black communities. One of the biggest challenges our communities need to tackle without black immigrants, because nearly three out of 10 black immigrant workers in the United States are involved in healthcare at some level. They're care nurses, they are RNs, they are doctors, they are surgeons, they are folks who help with custodial. They are integral in the healthcare system. So we can't think about what are the challenges that we have to undo and rectify if for black people in healthcare we don't talk about black immigrants because a black immigrant's experience of healthcare how they perceive and how their experience is shaped by anti-blackness might be different than a black american who's a descendant of slaves and it's just kind of we talk about we have to fix and we have to address folks who are most marginal in our communities, specific experiences for all of us to be free. (laughs) So it can't just be about black descendants of slaves who are English speaking and, you know, um, able-bodied and, you know, it has to think about all these other intersections that where care and disparities continue to be amplified in deeper ways. And when we get to those roots and when we address those issues, then collectively we can all experience a system that works for all of us. And I think another issue that we talk about often, um, raising the minimum wage, you know, in this current moment, protecting essential workers, reforming the service economy that literally kept this country alive after our government chose to abandon us in the middle of a global pandemic. How do we reform, you know, how do we reform that system and keep it fair and equitable and make sure that it's not exploiting people? In order, which disproportionately harms black and brown people. But guess what? In order to fix that system, we have to include the way that those systems attack black immigrant constituents specifically and intersectionally right. in order to address that problem. Right. So I, I think, you know, we love to champion in the social justice, however you want to classify us, that space that black people are not a monolith. But that's got to also extend beyond languages, beyond the English language, beyond cultures and borders as well. Like you said in the beginning, you know, even when we say Ubuntu, we mean that we are everywhere at all times. Literally, I am because we are. We are here. We are there. We are doing this. We are doing that. We are believing this. We are celebrating that. Our culture, you know, it's. It's it's almost this omnipotent idea that we are in existence with each other that transcends all of these physical limitations that we put along ourselves. And so I feel like we have to continue to do this work of solidarity building amongst black immigrant communities because we have to really recognize that there is a way to support beautifully diverse communities for black people where all of us can find worth celebrating and worth appreciating and worth collaborating with and so that we can hold each other up and really be there for each other when different facets of white supremacy and state-sanctioned violence harm some of us more than others you know Mm. it's really key that's uh, super key. Yeah, David, as you mentioned, I mean, it's so important that we recognize uh, the importance of solidarity. And as you said, the fact that black communities have really played uh, an absolutely integral role in uh, really shaping our economy and keeping keeping this country going. 
And so for all of, but as you mentioned previously, and as David touched on here at Ubuntu, we always, you know, want to reiterate that black people are not a monolith. I think what's so moving about this conversation is that no matter what place of origin immigrants in the U.S. are from, uh, we can really understand that there's a, a series of complicated and very important decisions and sacrifices that each person um, and household traveling uh, is really making to become part of this country, part of the USA. Uh, but yeah. For, yeah, for many of us, it's not met with a, a very easy path to citizenship or, or legal protections to ensure you know that we're integrated um, and for our safekeeping as well. But the U.S. has created a lot of barriers in order to, to limit, push, or even make migration to this country fatal. Now, David, you mentioned earlier in your opening uh, about what comes to mind when we think of challenges with immigration. Um, and we talked about the previous administration um, of Donald Trump. And I think those of us who are undocumented uh, and and how they always, they always uh, bear, how they always bear the biggest burden of this immigration community. There are many undocumented black individuals in the U.S. as well. And there's a specific way black migrants are targeted by both law enforcement and immigrations. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. That leads me to ask, do you think that there are important connections to be made between mass incarceration in this country and then the immigration industrial complex for black migrants? Hmm, that's a great question. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I feel like we disconnect these conversations so often. You know, we look at mass incarceration as a black issue and then we tend to look at yeah. things like, you know, the immigration industrial complex. And for some people who are like, what's that? We'll have a link to in our stories for more learning on that. But that's the other that's another system where we talk about how can immigration be made profitable um, in this country. And so I think when I think about the immigration industrial complex and how it's made profitable by the exploitative, exploitative nature and extractive nature of other people who are involved in that system. I think about how we get our food, how we get our agriculture, who is sustaining literally the agricultural lifeline of the U.S. And for many places, especially in states like where I belong, California, that is unregulated, unsustainable labor from undocumented people. Mm. where there are systems in literal industries set up to cipher and cycle folks who are undocumented in and out of these American systems to produce and extract labor from them at every turn while giving them and supplying them the lease in return in terms of money, in terms of security, in terms of citizenship. And so, yes, if you are having a snack on an apple or something and or a pair of grapes or a banana, you are most likely eating something that has been tilled by a person of color. If you're in certain states, you're definitely eating something that has been harvested, most likely by an undocumented person. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about the immigration industrial complex. Just like the prison industrial complex, that's a system that criminalizes nearly everything so black people particularly can continue the legacy of unregulated, unfair slave production. That's why everything you get at Target and Walmart has been made by folks in prison. 
So, hey, do I think they're... Yeah. You know, like, do I think there are connections? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, like, there's a lot of connections. It's all about, I feel like the connections are, you know, in terms of structurally, it's about how the state decides where and when and in what forms to produce labor, who's involved, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the kinds of patterns and cultural messages and notions that we have to create surrounding those people who are being exploited to normalize this exploitation and how do we you know render invisible this entire production and then legalize it like those systems are very much part of the same coin they're very much a part of how we keep the american way of life the way it is for most of us who are not directly implicated in those systems though we're all indirectly involved because we're all consumers you know and most of us not by choice (laughs) um let somebody who makes under $100,000 try to make it without bargaining, you know, throughout the day feeding a family. Let's be real. But um, those systems are also not racially um, exclusive, you know, and, and constrictive in terms of who is in those spaces and who are not. You have black immigrants, you have black undocumented people who are part of the immigration industrial complex. And, and even if they're not necessarily part of producing labor, ICE and the militarized law enforcement border patrol system apparatus, that's just an extension of mass incarceration because it is the same systems at play. Private companies investing in these carceral instruments to detain people. And you would just be surprised, just like, how you would no one would have ever thought in their right mind that somebody can make money off of people being in jail people still in their right mind don't understand how someone can make money off someone being detained by ice but everything is about making money from who's supplying uh providing supplies to who is what are the companies regulating phone calls to who is you know creating land and zoning for these Um, buildings and these structures to be built. That's all about profit and it's all destroying those who have been decided as like the instigators to be a part of those systems. So that was a very impassioned and kind of long response for me. But um, I do believe there are important connections and I do believe in terms of advocacy, when we talk about prison abolition, you can't talk about that without talking about what that means for how immigration looks in this country and how we talk about um, detaining those who are considered undocumented and who would be considered illegal, whatever that means. You can't have that conversation. And then vice versa, you can't have a real conversation about immigration and being detained in the practice of ICE without talking about mass incarceration because the same instruments are being yielded in a different way Mm -hmm. for the same purpose, just with different people sometimes. And some people like black migrants find themselves in the same system, like on a loop over and over and over again. And there's an incredible story that we're going to link in the story description as well about one particular man who found himself, who's undocumented, found himself in between, um, between ice, between being locked up by the cops. And it just was like this back and forth, like ping pong of like trying to like, essentially he was 
system failures in these multiple places because he lived at this particular intersection of being black and undocumented. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think like, what do you think, Kenok, in terms of the question you asked? Yeah, uh, it's, I think what you share there is so so relevant and so powerful. And, uh, and another article that uh, David and I came across uh, is from uh, Races. So the Refugee and Immigration, the, sorry, the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. And this really outlines mm-hmm. what you were talking about, David, regarding the, 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 the complex there and the connections that are there between, um, like you said, black migrants and mass incarceration. Um, on yeah. yeah, according to races, I mean, there is a greater risk statistically of deportation uh, among black immigrants as well because of their high sort of vulnerability and exposure to minor offenses. And then you also Mm. see that while 7% of non-citizens in the U.S. are black, they make up a full 20% of those facing deportation on criminal grounds. Uh, That statistic being from, yeah, that's from the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. And then you also see it's harder for for those that are in detention to become free. Uh, There's a statistic regarding bonds that are paid uh, and how bonds for detainees that are of Haitian descent uh, between June 2018 and June 2020 averaged 16,700, which is 54% higher uh, than for other immigrants. So just even from the statistics, right, from the research, you can see what you were talking Mm -hmm. about, David, how that plays out um, and the way in which Black immigrants are targeted for for minor offenses, they're they're and then when they are detained, uh, they're under like you said the cyclical system where they have to pay more to get out, and then they're more likely to face deportation from the get go. Wow, wow! And speaking to those like points, I mean, when we were having the conversation nationally about folks being detained. You know, how does that impact COVID and why would people be doing that? And saw the images of like all these children at the border and these cruel camps and living conditions. What people didn't realize was that 44 percent of immigrants being detained by ICE right now are Haitian. Yes, they are black. They're Haitian. Like that's such a shift (laughs) from what we are all collectively imagining um and who also we believe to be are the necessary faces of like you know immigration advocacy and so as i said you know ice is an extension of that prison pipeline um that funnels like you said youth and who are vulnerable and black indigenous people into those systems it's the same thing mm-hmm. and it's got to be stopped It's got to be stopped. And so I think to that, just to kind of close up the conversation for folks who might be like, wow, this is opening my eyes. What do we do? You know, how do we support? There are organizations and some of them we've mentioned that are really working at a high level and also on the ground in communities um, that are most impacted by the Black immigrant experience, who you can support, who you can learn from, who you can donate you know, become a sponsor of these places. The first is African Communities Together. 
um, Baji, yeah. the Black Alliance Justice for Immigration that Hanok mentioned, Racist, as well as what Hanok mentioned, which is the, the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. There's also ACLU, who does a lot of support, um, you know, in various local chapters. And so we're going to link as well on the story in the um, the episode descriptions where you can follow them and get connected to their socials and other things that they do. But this was a great conversation, Hinnock. I think it was great as well. I learned a lot. Um, yes. Just from from this. Um, so, so thank you. Yeah, man, and I know the conversation doesn't even stop here. I know, Hanak, that you had a chance to interview someone who's going to come on and, you know, give some more context from a personal experience. What are some of the things we're talking about? So I want to know, you know, how I'm I'm excited to hear that interview because I haven't even heard it yet. Yeah. So I had a chance to speak with uh, Joel Malbranche, a former colleague of mine, and he is a Haitian-American first generation uh, immigrant. And so. I had a chance to kind of talk with him and, and get a sense of his personal story and the experiences that he had growing up in New York um, and just getting a sense of what are some of the key things that stood out for him. Um, and today, you know, to what extent does he feel like his story played a role in his own upbringing? Um, and we connected it to some of the discussions that we've had and we connected it to, you know, what we talked about here, the role um, and the experiences that black immigrants play that is different um, from other immigrants, right? But then the similarities that we also share with those um, across the African diaspora and those in the United States as well. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a listen. Thanks to all for coming on to the Ubuntu podcast, just to give you just a brief description of what we do. Um, our main sort of tagline is our goal here is to create a radically thoughtful space for the African diaspora to deeply explore how we create, sustain, uh, and struggle to achieve genuine community and solidarity across the world. Uh, so let's just get started with you giving us just a brief introduction of yourself, your own personal background, what are some of your passions and interests? Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for having me, Eddie. My name is uh, Joel uh, Albrecht. I am um, Haitian American. I was born and raised in uh, Queens, New York, and my family's from Haiti. Uh, growing up, I've been very uh, closely tied to Haiti. Um, I think, luckily for me, um, aside from being raised by two very Haitian parents, um, Haiti isn't very far from the United States. So someone like you who's from Ethiopia, it's not that easy, just even though there's that direct 15-hour flight, it's not as from DC. It's not you know you know it's it's harder to plan when when your um, extended family is so far away. Uh, but for me, I was very lucky. Haiti's about a four-hour flight, so I grew up uh, going there every summer since the age of like maybe six or seven. Uh, therefore, I'm very close with my family. Um, you know, um, it's uh, being raised, I think, in general by uh, first-generation immigrants gives you a different perspective on life because, um, uh, you know, your parents are just different. Uh, they're trying to raise you the way they were raised in the 1940s. You know, and um, it's and then they're also trying to, to adhere to uh, America. And for me, I, I'm from Queens, which is a huge melting pot. So I was kind of exposed to everything and, and everybody growing up. 
Um, my experience in, in terms of that is, you know, a lot of pressure, but at the same time, I'm the youngest and I'm the youngest, uh, and I'm a boy man now, manly man. But so, you know, you are spoiled and you get a little bit of that Prince, uh, <laughs> Prince King treatment. Uh, but at the same time, my parents never, uh, hesitated to, uh, in check. That's awesome, man. I think, yeah, I can definitely relate to a lot of what you shared there. Uh, you, I was, my next question, actually, you've already kind of briefly answered it. Uh, what was it like, I guess, growing up as Haitian American in Queens, uh, especially, like, what are some most fond memories that you have or like the biggest like highlights that you can take? Um, it's hard to say like one highlight, but one thing is, you know, my parents weren't the type to be like, um, there are a lot of people, specifically Haitians, don't always want to say that they're Haitian, uh, even though you have the large majority that are very proud to be Haitian. Uh, and in that majority, my parents existed. So there was a lot of music. Um, you know, whenever we had guests or even if we were at home or at someone else's house, they played music. Everybody would dance, uh, the food, um, all those things. And also, I'm really lucky that I grew up uh, speaking three languages in my household. Um, and I'm really thankful that my parents uh, really instilled that in me. Um, it's helped me to this day. So, like, uh, to pick one thing, it, it's hard, but I, I just think it's like a collection of memories, especially with family and just food and music and happiness and jokes. And they hit different in Creole. Um, and the older I get now, the more uh, attached I get to those memories and to those people. Um, sticking back a few years ago at my sister's wedding, just looking at the crowd and seeing how all these people who raised me were there. Um, so it's a sense of togetherness that I've definitely felt more so during um, the past year and a half with the, this global pandemic. Um, you just, you're just so much more thankful for what uh, those folks have been doing. Yeah, that's, that's really key. And I think the fact that you talked about how like thankful it makes you now, like looking back is something that, yeah, Absolutely. we all think we're, we're all definitely experiencing right now. Uh, from your experiences as well, what do you think people often fail to to consider when um, discussing like the the experiences of Black immigrants um, as opposed to other immigrant communities? Now, I know you grew up in Queens and you talked about how you were uh, you lived among other immigrants communities. What were some of the differences in terms of your experience as um, the son of Black immigrants in particular? Yeah, you know what? What's interesting about that's a great question because we see a lot now today, which is very prevalent. It's a group of um, they call themselves ADOS. Um, they are kind of uh, I forgot what the the actual acronym stands for, but it's basically the descendants of of American slaves. So uh, Black Americans who don't don't act, uh, have ties to uh, the African diaspora or the Caribbean diaspora. And I see a lot more of kind of tension between the two sides. And I think what, uh, what people don't think about a lot when it comes to, to black immigrants is the integration, you know, um, people tend to uh, kind of carry uh, categorize black people in one box. Like we're all just black. I mean, and yes, from the standpoint of the color of our skin, absolutely. But, you know, uh, we're so different and we're so diverse. Um, and in coming to the country like the United States, you have to adapt. Um, you can still keep true to who you are in terms of your culture. But if you are um, a young man or a woman and you're going to school 
and you're making friends. Uh, everyone, and even white people, they, they adapt to black culture. And um, that's a huge adjustment. It's a real huge adjustment. Um, growing up a lot, you know, uh, sometimes I would get made fun of the way I talk. Um, and, you know, that's a huge adjustment that people don't really think about when it comes to black immigrants. Um, perhaps now, I don't know if they, people have it easier. Um, but it, it, it's an interesting kind of uh, meeting point into keeping true into how you're being raised and also where you're being raised. Um, so I think that's a challenge that people don't really think about a lot. It, it, it's that kind of that meeting point, that coalescing of, of those two cultures. Yeah, that's that's all really key and something that I think I've experienced as well. Um, do you feel like another thing that I thought of, do you feel like uh, growing up, you were able to connect more with folks like, uh, for example, like those that were like from African-American communities, um, as opposed to what was your experience, I guess, in terms of how you were able to connect with other immigrant communities as opposed to like African-Americans? Do you feel like there's more of a gap? Yeah. What did that look like for you, I guess? Um, I think in Queens, having access to all types of people made it easy. Um, you know, the majority of my friends growing up were, I didn't have too many friends from, from who were African-American. I think that happened a lot later in life for me. Um, but growing up, you know, I had people from the Caribbean, uh, from Asia, uh, you know, mainly from China, uh, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Trinidadians, Jamaicans. Um, and, and then definitely some some African Americans as well. I think though in Queens, uh, especially Jamaica Queens, where I'm from, it was really a melting pot of like the Caribbean. Um, so I, I would say that it was easier for me uh, subconsciously to connect to immigrant communities because that's kind of me being keeping an open mind to trying out everything. Um, but I didn't have a real issue uh, kind of uh, having. Black American friends as well. Um, I think that's happened more so in my life now as an adult, just because, I, again, in New York, while there is a, a large African American uh, population, the Black people in New York, New York City at least, in my opinion, tend to be more from the Caribbean or from, from Africa. Um, Maybe they, like me, were born in the United States, born in New York, but their parents are kind of the same way I was raising them with that foreign mentality. And um, but all of us, you know, we all of us as kids looked up to, you know, black culture, you know, the way we dress and the way we talk and the way the music, movies we watch. Um, so. I think it's it's kind of like a, a blessing to be able to to to, to kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for straddle that line of, of both cultures um, because for me you know I definitely pay homage to um, the historians the leaders in the African American community the new movie about uh, Fred Hampton. Um, I forget the actual title. Judas and the Black Messiah. And I knew of Fred Hampton, but to really kind of the movie really went in deep um, into his his leadership style, um, how people responded to him and how he brought people together. You know, in, in Chicago, there were gangs that represented everything, you know, where they were, whether they were whites who supported the Confederacy, uh, the Young Lords, Bloods, Crips. 
Um, but everyone kind of got under that banner. And, and I think that that's something that, uh, African Americans really are so strong at is really having people under a united front. Um, so yeah, I recommend that movie when it, once it comes out on non bootleg, uh, <laughs> systems. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, just piggybacking on that. So do you feel like in terms of, uh, solidarity and, sort of like that gap that exists between maybe African-Americans and from those that are from the African diaspora, do you feel like that's changing or what are some of it? I think like in what ways do you think that's progressed over time from your experience? Oh, you know, um, being that we're not really socializing too much these days or, or even prior to that, we're, we're, we're way more connected to social media and podcasts such as this. You know, a lot of what I'm seeing is there is a divide between African-Americans and um, people from the African-Caribbean diaspora. Um, it's it's come at a time where uh, people are saying the country feels divided. Um, it's, it's, it's important and frustrating at the same time. It's important that these issues get talked about, but it's also frustrating that it's not being done through real dialogue, in my opinion. It's being done through more social media, which is so toxic. I mean, as, as, as we've seen for the past four years, how toxic it can actually be. Um, but at the same time, I do think that there is, it, it's progressed so much more. And kind of piggybacking off what I was saying before, like me as an Asian American, yes, I very stay very much true to my Asian roots. But again, I... My my childhood, a lot of my adulthood also has been like uh, formed by Black Americans. Um, it's it, as Haitian as I want to be. I am American, you know. Like uh, it's in the way I talk. It's it's in the way I walk. Um, so even though I feel like there has been a, a bit of a divide these days, at least through what I'm seeing uh, through social media, uh, I do feel that, though, we still have uh, made a lot of moves to kind of, like I was talking about how Fred Hampton was able to kind of unite everyone under one, I won't say flag, but one idea. And, and I think, especially as uh, we progress past this past four years of Donald Trump, I hope that there's more of that. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with what you're saying. And I think, yeah, like you said, there's definitely been progress. Um, definitely learn to pay homage to to those in the African-American community that have done so much um, for immigrants to even come here uh, to have that ability to, to live Absolutely. here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the next question I'll ask you actually is, you know, recent over the year, over this, uh, over the past year or so, we've had the Black Lives Matter movement really expand and grow. Um, conversations on police brutality only continue. Uh, do you feel like there's a connection between uh, police brutality in the States that oftentimes African-Americans experience um, and do you think that connects with, uh, the experiences of like immigrants from the black and Caribbean diaspora as relates to how they interact with law enforcement? Like, have you witnessed or experienced any examples of how black immigrants have been, uh, treated by law enforcement or how they've interacted with, with them in a way that's different from maybe other immigrants? That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, black people in general, it doesn't matter where you're from, the cops just see that. The, the, cop, the cops don't see if you're from Ethiopia or Arkansas. If you're black, they're just black. Um, and that's, you know, they don't 
scan you to see where you're from. And even if they did, I don't think it would uh, change how they treat uh, black people. Um, they are stopping them in traffic or accusing them of something or gunning them down. Um, I just had a conversation today with somebody about how, um, you know, in Biden's, what, four days now in office, uh, his executive orders, the executive orders he's been he's been uh, prioritizing, uh, one of them being the 100 days of no uh, deportations. And now that's, you know, been a priority of his. But in terms of the black community, only addressing the 1776 bill that uh, Trump had put in order. But he really isn't addressing uh, any of the Blue Lives Matter, a uh, Blue Lives Matter executive orders that Trump had uh, had signed throughout um, his tenure. I think in 2017, he had something signed during Black History Month to show you how much of a slap in the face. Uh, that was um, so. I, there is no difference. Um, but what what's happening is, and talk to my friend who works for uh, works with in trying to stop deportations uh, within the immigrant community, is that he made it a point to say that while La Latinos or Latinx, excuse me, if I'm saying that correctly, are the ones who are getting deported the most. Um, right after that are the ones that have the most criminal convictions are black immigrants. So there is a trend here. Um, if you're black, it doesn't matter where your background is from in the United States. Uh, the cops have a target on your back. Um, you know, uh, I'm, a lot of my black friends, wherever they're from, they are from, we all have a story of being racially profiled somewhere. If you're going into a convenience store, you know, a, a white woman, Across the street, clutching her her purse. Um, you know, we have stories about having to put on our white voice when we're on customer service, or making sure that uh, you know that we're doing always being above and beyond just to get recognized. And, and, and it, unfortunately, it's even worse for for black women. Uh, but to answer your question, I don't see a difference in how. And I think this is answering your question: how black people from wherever they are from are, are being policed differently by cops in the United States, at least the city that I've been in. Yeah, and I think even what you mentioned about uh, Black immigrants, those that are detained and deported, we, I was talking about it with a friend yesterday and co-host while we were recording about how statistically, like, Haitian immigrants actually um, are detained for longer. They yep. they have to pay higher bonds. So, just like you said, like, statistically in the system, you can see the way in which circumstances are different and their experiences are different as well. So, I think you really touched on that pretty well. Yeah. yeah. And and a lot of, for example, the Haitian uh, people who are being detained and then deported, many of them, while they are Haitian citizens, they've never set foot in Haiti. Um, so they're being, they're being deported, sent to a place that is foreign to them. Um, and, you know, uh, and, to, you know, to, to Donald Trump's credit, that's been happening even under Obama, who I'm a huge fan of. So um, this is an American thing. And it, uh, there isn't a, a particular president that has uh, made it their thing. Yeah, definitely. And we, we actually talked about that yesterday, too, how it's been you know in the system for a long time, long before Donald Trump, just like you said. So mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah, it's an yeah, American for thing. Sure, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so... 
I'll actually transition now uh, to talk a little bit about your own kind of experience working in the development slash humanitarian sector. What are the ways, yeah, as sure. like a as an Asian and American, as a black man, what are some of the ways that you feel like your identity has played a role um, in your work in the sector and the communities that you've worked with, um, whether it be like in mm-hmm. Haiti or um, I believe you've worked in Latin America as well and uh, in Africa as well. Like, what are some of the ways that you feel like it's played a role? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously the language factor uh, <laughs> has helped me so much. Um, like I said, growing up speaking French uh, and, and, and Haitian Creole and which has a huge role in my career in general. Um, in the development sector, you know, it, it's predominantly uh, women, um, at least more so in the United States. I think in the field, um, it's it's more... There are more males, at least in in Africa. Uh, there are more males, and it's they are a lot of third country nationals. So, for example, you know, I can meet someone in Ethiopia who's from Uganda, working there. But a lot of those are are, are, are men. Um, but going back to how much it's helped me, you know, um, growing up and going to Haiti every every year as a kid, which kind of became like summer camp, has really trained me for any other place that I go to. I go somewhere and I see something and. A lot of the time, it's not the first time I'm seeing it. It's like, oh, there goes a rooster just walking inside of my uh, office while I'm typing on my computer. I mean, I've seen that before. Um, you know, trying new food or being hanging out with coworkers who are from said country. Like, I I definitely feel like that. I feel way more at ease because of, of, of my background. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the things that I, I've, you know, been pleasant how many Haitians are actually in the development field, Haitians from Haiti. Um, you know, the UN has been in Haiti since the 90s. So um, people have been able to get jobs that way, and therefore they've you know, graduated from working in Haiti to working elsewhere. I've seen large Haitian communities in the Central African Republic. Every Thursday, there's a compa night at the, at the bar uh, that I go to when I'm in CAR. In DRC, in Goma, I ran into a huge... Haitian uh, community there. And it's so refreshing to see uh, that people are able to take the experiences they, they've had and, and transfer it overseas. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm happy to be a part of that community as well. Uh, and when I run into them, you know, they always have, you know, since I'm still, you know, not old yet, still a little young, but they always have words of advice. Um, and, you know, they always make you feel like you're at home. Um, so it's those two things. It's, it's the background and the training that I've gotten at home from a language standpoint, also from visiting Haiti, which just made me feel comfortable going just about anywhere. Haiti was actually the hardest post I had when I worked in Haiti after the earthquake. That was that was harder than anything I've ever done. And then, um, again, running into Haitians when you're in some what you think is a random country, but it's not so random because you see them, they see you. It's always, it's always love. Yeah, it's awesome. And I think even in your um, experiences, it, it kind of goes to show how, like as a diaspora, we're very much connected in a way, like you're seeing Haitians in Goma. Um, you know, like, yeah. it just goes to show like how, in a way, we're all you know, really connected in um, the solidarity that we all kind of have. So that actually leads me to my final question. Uh, here at Ubuntu, we ask this to most of our guests. Uh, if you could speak to every member of the diaspora right now, uh, what would you say? Like, what would one message be that you would share to, to the diaspora? 
the diaspora that's in the United to States. The black African diaspora, like worldwide, what would you say? Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think it's important that you educate yourself about other people's struggles. Um, I've been doing that a lot more lately about uh, black people struggling in the United States. I think a lot of the books that I've been reading have been about that. Uh, and I think it's my duty to know. Um, you know, I, I grew up differently than my, um, my friends who are black Americans. And I don't mean in a sense of like, you know, like poverty or anything like that, just differently. You know, I, I grew up raised by Asian parents and it's different. It's, it's totally different. Um, so I, I've made it my business to try and, and, and understand as much as I can, even though now I'm reading a book about Haiti before that was not about Haiti. Um, that's one thing I would say. And then the second thing I would say is um, to have some compassion. I think uh, you and I, Hanuk, were talking about uh, we hope that Americans have compassion after what just transpired, uh, not just uh, a few weeks ago with, uh, with what happened at the Capitol, but just seeing how the Donald Trump presidency unfolded. Unless you're a fan of Donald Trump, you have been witnessing what it's like to have the semblance of a dictator. And I think, I hope that it's made Americans more sympathetic. But I think in general, people in the African diaspora have to have sympathy for other people going through some sort of struggle. So whether you're from, you know, Haiti, I think you should try and, you know, see what's going on in Ethiopia and try and understand and see the parallels, see the differences um, and see that, you know, we're not so far off from being one in the same, that the struggles are the same um, and the compassion needs to be the same as well. That's right on. Um, having empathy for other people and, and what they're experiencing is so important, like you said, definitely. Yeah, man, thanks, Joel. Thanks so much for coming sure. on. Um, actually, one final thing. You have your own podcast, right? I do have my own podcast and um, it's been a, you know, I'm, I'm going to get back online again. This is definitely a motivating factor um, being on your podcast. So thank you for that. Um, my podcast is called the global citizen podcast. Uh, you can catch uh, me on most social media, media podcasts, uh, hosting sites, except for Spotify. I'm not on Spotify, but I am on Apple Music and uh, Global Citizen Podcast is also my uh, IG handle where the link to my podcast is. But um, yeah, I do have a podcast. I haven't posted anything since the summer, but uh, stay tuned. Oh, that's awesome. We'll make sure to, to put the links in our um, description when this goes out. Great. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Ubuntu Pod and on Facebook at the Ubuntu Podcast. Make sure to like, follow, and subscribe. You can listen to us on both Apple and Spotify as well.